I'm not going to preach on it, but, you know, I got to thinking at 8 o'clock when I was at the liturgy listening to uh, the lector reading the first lesson from Jeremiah. I thought, boy, that's a real setup at 8 o'clock in the morning listening to that thing. What in the world? But not, not this Sunday will you hear from me on that subject. Also, Psalm 14, the... the um, First line, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you notice in the Book of Common Prayer in the Psalter, above each psalm, there's the number, and then there's a little italicized Latin phrase. And in this particular case, it, which comes from the Vulgate version of the, of the psalms, the Latin. And it says, Dixit incipiens. The insipid say, there is no God. <laughs> Which is an interesting, interesting thing. More on that another time. I want to preach on the two, the last two readings, the one from First Timothy, and principally the Gospel, uh, where we have a couple of parables tacked together. This is the section, by the way. This is the chapter where, if you were to read it, verse one through thirty-two, you would read the two parables about uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the balance is about the prodigal son. So the, the parable of the prodigal son is unique to Luke. It's not in any of the other Gospels. But these, the first two that we read today are also in Matthew so, and I think Mark. So we have, that's just a recasting of the, their versions of this particular passage. The two things that I want to say is the first question is, I'm thinking about this because I have to preach at the Santa Maria Urban Ministries 30th anniversary uh, late this afternoon. And it's, you know, what do we do? Why do we do this? What are we doing it for? You know, and you might want to ask the question since Luke asked the question or says, I think it was part of the plan of God that the church come into being. Then what did it come into being for? Did it come into being for the purpose of we together as a community spend all our time patting one another into shape? Or do we understand that that's very important to do and we do it and then we understand that we prepare ourselves to for the world? You know, not necessarily as my grandfather used to say to join the Bolsheviks and get into the bomb throwing department. <laughs> but for the purpose of in our way uh, making a difference and being an example. So in the first reading from Timothy, uh, Paul, let me say, I, I, I tell you all this stuff not for the purpose of disillusioning you or changing your belief about this, but in biblical scholarship, I would guess that the majority of New Testament scholars would tell you that in all probability, First and Second Timothy were not written by Paul. They're Deuteropauline. And the reason they would say that is because of what is talked about there, how the institution we call church had developed by the writing of these epistles. And the themes that seem to be important to the writer are not the themes of the undoubted letters that were a real concern to Paul. Be that as it may, uh, I think it's perfectly acceptable still to say you believe, you can say that Paul wrote them and that's what we do in our lectionary. Right. Uh, my own personal opinion, which is conservative, is that uh, I believe Paul wrote Colossians and I believe he wrote Ephesians. 
but first and second Timothy, you know, may be something of a stretch. So I'm just telling you that. But for purposes of, of clarity, I will say Paul in, in the sermon. About this. Um, so Paul is writing today, and he's speaking about the processes of God at work in himself as he was converted. So he's talking about conversion. And he says in so many words in this, uh, intro- this in chapter 1 that he uh, was transformed by God's work in him and the purpose of this was that he could provide an example to other people in his work and in his ministry so that he would be assisting people to be able to come to believe. In the course of this, it could sound, sometimes, you know, when you read Paul, you think he's, he sounds pretty self-important, right? He, there's a lot of stuff about him. But remember, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had some readings where we talked about humility. And humility is a quality, a, uh, a spiritual, emotional, mental disposition that doesn't have to do with lying across a threshold and having people step on you to go in. That humility is knowing yourself. Thomas Aquinas said when he spoke about humility in the 13th century, he said, it is the quality by which we know ourselves, and we know this. We know that there are things that we can do that are better than other people can do, and there are other things that other people can do that we can't do. So in terms of knowing ourselves, we own that. And we understand, therefore, that it is important not to to turn our back on what it is that we do know. Or, for that matter, to listen to people uh, compliment us for what we know. I remember years ago when I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, one of my parishioners, uh, he and I had helped found a uh, a non-profit community development corporation in, in Sausalito. And um, we were talking about things, and we'd been going to a lot of public hearings and doing a lot of stuff. And uh, at the end of one of the hearings, he said something to me that was very complimentary. And I said, yeah, but, uh, you know, and he said, don't step on what I'm telling you. Listen to me. (laughs) Right? Don't step on that. So it was a lesson about, well, take the compliment. Right? is isn't going to kill you. And here Paul is speaking about this because it's an important... I suspect the situation on the ground was, was this. Everybody who has had an experience in their life where it has affected in them a change, we would call it a conversion experience, uh, comes to realize over time that it can fade So the big question in all important things, vocational, spiritual, uh, emotional, is how do we preserve that sense of intensity and commitment? You know, what do we do to keep the enthusiasm up? What do we do to uh, be able to rise to the occasion? And what we have to do is to realize that the processes of God are at work in such a way that we get reconverted sort of over time or we change the direction of where we think 
the important learning was in the process of that conversion, because some of the things that may have converted us originally, we find now less uh, uh, beguiling than we used to. So it's important for us to say, how do we understand and revivify this sense of vocation? And in a sense, Paul is speaking about that here, because the community of faith we call the church needs to do that too. It needs to understand itself anew in every age. And I suspect all of us, you know this, need to do it about our vocations and about the things that we do. And it's particularly important when we have met a lot of resistance and we're discouraged. You know, we feel somehow like we're not getting any traction about the things we need to. So this constitutes uh, for us a sort of, um, you know, uh, understanding that we need to think about what was it that uh, set you on fire in the first place? And Paul speaks about all the things that he's gone through in this particular uh, epistle, and he talks about that with the community. And he encounters people in his missionary journeys where the, the, the issues are not quite the same. So we look at things and think, you know, that's the... That's the same thing. Um, Father Thomas Keating in a YouTube video uh, that where he talks about something called oneness, which is part of the contemplative uh, way of understanding things. Um, he said, I think it's fair to say that when we speak about oneness, we have to say that there are a great many onenesses. And further to the point that when we speak, we talked about this a week or two ago too, God's sovereignty or God's unchangeableness, the unmoved mover, that God is always moving. He said that's probably why Elijah only could see his backside as he was moving away from him. And as soon as he turned around, he was back again. Right? So when we think about unchangeability, we also need to think about that movement that's operating. And in a sense, Paul is alluding to that in today's epistle. It's important for us to, to understand our, our vocation and our conversion in new ways as we live. You know, It doesn't operate in a fixed way. There are a lot of people who look... You know, one of the problems with talking about conversion and so forth is that there is a species of evangelical Christianity that has been so influential in this country, even among critics of Christianity, that that's the way they think everybody thinks about this. You know? And because of some of the behavior of that kind of proselytizing, uh, there are people who have been lost to the church forever. There have been people who have been lost to the church forever. So Paul is saying, you know, think about yourself as a template and think about, as you do this, that it is going to assist you in being an example. Being an example for other people. In the gospel, we have two parables. We have the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Uh, the, the predicate to this or the intro to this is the scribes and the Pharisees 
were upset with Jesus because he welcomed sinners and ate with them. So he was involved with people who were, you know, we've talked about Gentiles. Luke's gang were mostly all Gentiles. Gentile in Greek is ethne. Ethne. Which can be translated as those people. So when we say that, he's, they're mad because he's associating with those people. Right? And he's chosen two uh, people in the parable that he spoke today who were not considered high on the social scale in his, in his world. Shepherds who were considered to be an unsavory lot, even though they had a kind of nurturing uh, uh, vocation. And women who turn out to be an example of somebody who rejoices because they found something that was lost, right? This parable, these parables have usually been preached uh, and the theme that the preacher chooses is uh, the atonement, that Jesus goes and seeks to save the lost, and we understand that in terms of his uh, death on the cross and resurrection. And you can preach on these passages that way. My way of understanding this when I think about that is that Jesus, through Luke, who is very specific about this when I said earlier, believes that the church should come into being. He therefore understands those who were part of what we call the church must be then the instruments of seeking and saving the lost. And seek to bring people in who were no longer in. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep, gets, gets, finds the lost sheep, and brings the sheep back, and everybody's happy. The sheep and everybody else rejoices with him. The earliest depictions in Christian art of Jesus are Jesus with the sheep on his shoulders as the good shepherd. That is the earliest. It is not until the four, late 400s, the 5th century AD, that we have any depiction in Christian art of Jesus on the cross. And I've seen the earliest one in Rome at Santa Sabina Church on the door of the old church. It's a 5th century church and it's right next door to the circus where Ben-Hur had the big chariot race. You know. And near the Pansione we stayed in Clivo di Publici Numero Due. And so in the panel is the cross. Jesus, 5th century. So that means there was a long tradition where Jesus somehow was th thought of as seeking and saving the lost and believed also that we who are part of the life of the church are going to be engaged in that. We're going to be concerned in some way with reaching out in love and concern for others. In addition to finding the ways and the means to nurture and strengthen one another in that process, so that involves all of the 
you know, the social and the institutional things that are part of how you do that. But that somehow the, the impulse to extend uh, is, a, is a very important thing. And the gospel encourages people to do that. So I would say that the uh, lesson for this week is to figure out how to be an example for those who would come to believe. See if you can begin to, to uh, find out what it is you can be to be a transparency and reflection of God's grace and love. You know, I say this to you a lot, and it's true. You need to be the best human being you can be. When other people see that, uh, they want to follow that example. You don't have to always, or even at all, speak a particular religious vocabulary to model that kind of faithfulness. And seeking the ways and the means to do that is, is an important thing. So the reading from the gospel and from Paul's letter today are encouraging us to say we need to understand uh, the life of the church as both the internal processes of strengthening one another, but also for the purpose of reaching out in love and concern for others and transforming society in such a way consistent with the gospel that it is easier for people to be good. Amen. Amen.